guys, it's Sin and Janine back for Naked and Inside Out. This week, uh, we are gearing up our first interview with Sean Sprocket. Woo! Let's bring him in. <laughs> There's a tunnel of love right now. Um, okay, so it's me, Sin, Janine, Sean, and then we also have a cameo appearance, perhaps. Lily, the cat, might be joining us, so if you hear any strange animal noises, she'll be injecting her thoughts as well. So here we go. So it's Janine. I've met Sean in grad school a few years ago when I was attending a school of visual arts, designers, author, and entrepreneur program. Uh, when I first met Sean, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> he does not come from a design background, and he had only applied to two graduate schools, both located in New York. And he ended up at SVA. And here he is. I'd like to introduce you guys to him, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you're from, kind of how you ended up at SVA, and what you're doing today. Sure. So uh, I'm from originally from Youngstown, Ohio, which is a little town right on the border of uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania. My family moved to Florida right before high school, so into high school in Orlando and then college in Miami, and then uh, worked a little bit in Florida before I decided I wanted to go to SVA for uh, kind of a formal education in design, and that's when I... Uh, moved up here. So that's kind of the short story version of it. Um, yeah, you're right. I didn't have a design background. I did international relations in undergrad. Um, so I was interested in politics and um, started working with like a, no a lot of nonprofits. And then the nonprofits always did really um, terrible things with their branding and like, God bless them, their like heart was in the work that they did, but they weren't thinking about the image that was actually kind of important. And so I started working with nonprofits and helping them you know, redo their logo, basic branding, probably terrible, awful work by my own standards now, but it was a start and they didn't have any money to pay anyone else and they didn't really care about those things. So it was like easy to innovate and do cool, like things that you thought would be interesting. And um, sure enough, like just looking like they had their stuff together, they actually got more grant money, were able to do more of the things they wanted to do. And this kind of light bulb went off that like design actually has a huge impact in the way that um people kind of are able to do these really amazing things like like design can actually be a bigger agent for change than even some of these uh international relations kind of topics that i was studying so that's kind of what started to change my mind towards looking at design instead of so how did you know how to then design like how did you um so my my mom uh created a newsletter for our church and always had photoshop around so i was aware of these these products but I didn't really know them until say like the beginning of college I started like I, my dad had photography on the side and so he had like an old copy of like Photoshop Elements it wasn't even like full Photoshop <laughs> I know it was Photoshop like, Elements yeah, yeah. And so, like, and I think so, I had that on my computer <laughs> and so it was weird like so I had that it was like a, a pirated copy from my dad and um, like I said like with Amnesty International a lot in college like we'd be doing events and they would need a poster or they would need like a video to like market the event and this is like the early days of like YouTube was just starting to come around so it was um, there were all these cool new things with the web we could do to promote all the stuff and the topics and themes we wanted to with these organizations since Amnesty is largely an awareness organization that was like a, a, I don't know those were just easy um, kind of incentives to learn all these platforms and so it took several years but eventually it Got the hang of Photoshop and a bunch of other stuff. And, and you built a portfolio. Got, got better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Self-taught, basically. Yeah, yeah. The wow. class with Milton Glaser at SVA was my very first design class. And, wow. And wow, was, I didn't even know that. Yeah. It's it a was, lot of pressure. It was <laughs> yeah, it was terrifying because he opens the class with what is design. And you're like, I don't know. That's why I'm here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and plus with that class, we had an assignment. Prior to that class, yes, started. describing your influences. Yeah, yeah, I was super intimidated. But. So we had a so you had your first design class and design critique. Yep. Wow. Wow. From, I didn't know yeah, that from Milton. How was that? Uh, you know, I don't even remember. Like he would kind of like saunter through the class and sometimes spend like five minutes talking about your thing, and sometimes just be like, "This is good," and just like move right on by. I think I was in the category of like forgettable, and he just kind of went, <laughs> yeah. he just kind of kept going, which is good. Like I don't know, like. Too much attention might have been a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I actually remember that. He he had the class pick out, like, which ones stood out to them. Yeah. 
And then the critique was based on that. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting for mine to get picked. And it just didn't get picked. And mine, I didn't even do in the computer. So you were forgettable as well. Yeah. <laughs> we were both forgettable. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, that's maybe a smart way to set up a design thing, right? Like the things that stick out in your, the things that speak to the group are the things that get called out. It's a way of, very Milton now that I think about it. Because like, I remember his thing about like, products on the shelf in the grocery store yeah. and how like they're all competing with each other and it's the same thing it's like putting all these products next to each other and seeing which ones the designers want to talk about is kind of an easy baseline of like these are the interesting ideas yeah and like how to start the conversation mm-hmm. right so do you want to talk a little bit about our many many hours spent working on our <laughs> thesis projects at sva um i know you focused yours on uh part of your inspiration like you said was from working at those nonprofits. i believe yeah, yeah. I'm making a more interesting sort of educational experience. Yeah, so it was kind of a wayward road. I started with the nonprofits, but then, you know, they didn't have any money. So I wasn't like getting hired as a designer because they don't, they don't normally hire an in-house designer. Um, they'd probably just throw like whatever pennies they have at like a firm that would do it if they did it at all. So I wasn't going to get any work doing that. I ended up getting a job after college with uh, an ed tech startup called FYI that was doing the first online high school for the University of Miami. And I actually got hired as an editor because I still didn't have like a strong portfolio yet. So they didn't hire me as a designer. They hired me as an editor to like basically because I had done journalism for a while. So at that point, my resume looked a little different where I had more like journalism experience with magazines. And so they brought me in to just basically like proofread the curriculum that was getting passed through. And so I started doing that. And um, they had like one or two designers there and I, I looked at some of the UI they were designing for what the curriculum would look like in this interface. And I remember looking at it and going, I know Photoshop, I could do way better than this. And I like, <laughs> kind of like stole one of their papers off the desk and went home and like over the weekend, like redid the African studies course and like oh redesigned it. And I came back in and I, I don't know why, I clearly had nothing to lose. I like emailed the CEO and the head of that design department what? was like, hey, I fixed this. Like, I think this was like a more immersive experience like you guys were talking about, blah, blah, blah. And the CEO loved it and like moved me over immediately into the design department. And that was my first design job was... So you were like destined to design. Uh, I was, yeah, I was stepping on toes, pushing my way into the department. Yeah. But yeah, that was, that was the first design job. So it started with education and technology. And then from there, I worked at a training company that did like professional training for corporations, which is a miserably boring industry, but, um, I was starting to see lots of opportunity, um, I was, I was dating a guy at the time who was acting a lot and he was out of the apartment and so I got bored and I started playing video games again for the first time and I started realizing that the video games were doing a lot of the same things that the training software I was working on by day was trying to do. Oh. Um, but they were doing a much more effective job of it, mostly because they were just like investing some time and money into the experience, making good stories, making compelling art. like. None of the things that we were putting our time or money into, we were pretty much just treating online learning like books, where it was like, click to the next page, answer a multiple co- choice question, and it was, it was terrible. Like, people were paying millions of dollars for these really terrible experiences, and no one had any vision for why it could be, how it could be better. So I remember trying to pitch a couple of different times to get the organization I was working at to like, do something, and there was just no incentive. Like every, all of their competitors were shoveling the same shit. So it was not really, you know, there was no incentive to spend that money in research and development. And so that's, that's around the time that I started going, all right, I know I want like a formal design education. Like this is actually what I want to do. I know that there's opportunities in this market that aren't being taken advantage of. And I kind of stumbled across SVA's program and it was all about empowering designers to start their own companies. And I was like, done like that's perfect so yeah so i was also one of the rare cases in our program where i came into it knowing exactly what i wanted to do like like everyone else had like a deliberation (laughs) process trying to figure out which makes sense i feel like if you asked me now i'd have maybe a harder time figuring i don't know i'd have too many ideas that would be hard to pick one but um but yeah in that case i came in like no this is why i moved here this is what i'm trying to do yeah and then started at sva working on that project and um it was great so so the idea ended up being like it was online learning but it was taking a lot of cues from gaming and what was going on in terms of this like richer storytelling like novel level writing that was is starting to happen in games where it's like you have serious actors serious writers getting involved and um the game industry is now like 60 billion dollars which is bigger than music film and television combined or something oh, wow. like that so it's That's it's huge cool. money huge uh, revenue and it's still got a lot of funny stigmas as being like something that like either nerdy guys play or teenagers <laughs> play and that's probably deserved in a lot of cases but we have things like apps now that are doing cool things and yeah. that are kind of game like and I don't know more and more people are playing games and 
anyway, long way around to say that like um, the the tool, the thesis I worked on was called Semio, and it was a online learning platform that was kind of like more like Netflix. Um, and then when you picked an episode or a show that was training you in a specific skill set, it was more it was more kind of indirect. You weren't necessarily like taking multiple choice questions, but you had a choose your own adventure storyline. So you're following these characters, you're genuinely interested in, and hopefully it would have good writing. And then you would uh, be choosing uh, what the main character was going to do in that situation. And then on the back end, instead of it just being like, he got the answer right or wrong, it would be like, he performed this way under pressure, he uh, saw these kinds of insights or opportunities, or he, you know, rebuffed authority or whatever. Like, you could actually do much more in-depth analysis of a person's way of working from these kinds of scenario-based things. And it's really not that, like, shocking. Like, when you think about the military has been using scenarios and games and all kinds of different, like, strategies to kind of improve their soldiers, and, and for some reason we've had that very separated from the way that we teach people uh, outside of that. So so that was Semio, and it actually did really well. ADP and UPS signed up to be beta testers. I had Morgan Stanley interested in doing some angel investing early on, and then just was totally burnt out after the program. Yeah, and, like all of us were. Yeah, and, and was so tired of talking about the idea. And I think I, I got an offer from IBM around the same time and realized that it'd be much easier to just kind of live on a salary and still make cool products. I don't know. Semio's not dead. I still have the corporation. I still have the ideas. I could revive it at any time, but I haven't quite gotten over grad school yet yeah. to go back and try to. I that. yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting, and I actually have a question, I guess, about. Um, so currently, I mean, you are involved in teaching. I mean, is this something mm. that is like a side passion to design for you? And why you're teaching? Are you incorporating like what you mm. learned from your thesis into that? I know it's like very different, yeah. but. I mean, I feel like you're really great at like connecting different like patterns and bringing it all together. So like, do you incorporate that like as you're teaching? That's a good question. Um, I don't. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's very, it is very different. Like when you are teaching a class versus like if you have an interactive. Yeah. I don't even know. Like an uh, online learning. Yeah, course. exactly. Yeah. 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 I'm, the, say, I'm the non-tech in the room. Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, it's funny because it, well, it's different. So I do. I teach a night class at General Assembly in visual design. It's a, it's a little different for a couple of reasons. One is I don't even really grade the students. Like I, there's technically like participation, but grades aren't really a big part of it because everyone there is just doing it for self-betterment. And, and really it's on them to learn this stuff. So I show up, but I don't really like grade them. So the whole value of evaluation piece that was part of semio doesn't really apply in that scenario i guess i could technically like people might actually get some value out of that kind of analysis but um the other part of it is that the general assembly kind of creates the core curriculum like the base of it um so i'm kind of following their pattern and their lead like they've actually been really open to letting me adapt it Mm -hmm. um but by and large i kind of follow it it's actually what has been really beneficial about that and surprising is like i was designing an online learning platform having never taught before yeah, that's that what is I think interesting, is so too. Interesting. I didn't realize that. So, yeah. so now that I'm teaching, I'm learning a lot of things about like, okay, not that I would totally do semio differently. I still agree with the basic premise of it, but I'm just gaining different insights into how people learn, what it's like to be, do it in person versus online. Just a lot of things like there's a principle I remember learning on the first day at General Assembly where they talk about like, I do, we do, you do. And so it's like first you demonstrate the skill, then you do it with the person, and then you let them do it on their own, right? Basic kind of like instructional design stuff that I didn't have memorized at the time because I was helping build some of these online learning platforms, but we had other content experts to do all that stuff. So I think it's been valuable to actually teach because uh, I feel like now I'm gaining some of that content expertise in terms of the psychology behind people learning and I don't know, just the amount of patience it takes and repetition it takes <laughs> yes. sometimes for people to like actually listen to what you said. And I think Semio might have maybe uh, put too much confidence or too much stock in like how smart people <laughs> were <laughs> using the software. And whereas now I think I just realized that whenever it's a new topic, it requires lots of like redundancies and time. And I don't know, there'd probably be a slightly different approach now that I, now that I actually teach. 
do you ever see yourself revisiting that or yeah every couple of months <laughs> no every once in a while i'll get like some energy usually after a vacation of like i could totally take this on now um yeah. well the unique thing is now i work at a startup i work in ad tech advertising technology now um so it's different i'm still doing platform designs i'm still applying the same kind of critical thinking that that i was doing in the other industries but but I'm also around a startup that has like a really interesting CEO and I'm just kind of enjoying the observer status. Like in SVA, there was so much pressure to have all the answers, to be the one who thought of everything. And that's great. I still, I still appreciate that role at times. There's nothing wrong with that. But it was also so overwhelming that after two years of it, like I was kind of burnt out. And so it's been nice to kind of be in the passenger seat of a startup and just be like watching the CEO, how he handles things and like closely monitoring the executive team and how they handle like rounds of funding and how they negotiate and how they market themselves. And I feel like I'm learning a lot just watching them. I also, while watching that, have like rethought about Semio and been like, all right, maybe I could do this. I'm learning a lot about, without having to take any of my own risks, I'm learning a lot about what it takes to run a startup and what, what kind of challenges there are. And I'm also making good inroads with like almost every CEO, once they've kind of had a few successes, they're also angel investors and things. So you're meeting people that could potentially be a part of your next thing. So yeah, I think about Semi a lot. I think I'm I'm kind of stretched thin between work and the teaching gig on the side, but can't imagine. No. But, <laughs> but but who knows? It, it would be kind of it would be kind of nice to go back and, and revisit that. What's I mean, it's always there on the table. And, yeah, you know, the more that you're involved with what you're doing and like you're bringing all those experiences back into it, it's always yeah. there. Um, what would you say, um, since you are working at more of like a startup company, what are the biggest differences you see transitioning from more of a corporate environment to a startup? Mm. Like just like environment-wise, people, or even like the whole creative process? Yeah, it's interesting. Like SVA puts also a lot of pressure on us that like, I don't know, we're trained by these kind of, they're, they're unusual people to become so influential as a designer because... You're talking about people like Stefan Sagmeister and Milton Glaser and all these like monoliths, really, like these people that are have these incredible backgrounds and all they really know is how to work with themselves and with clients. Like they didn't really share a whole lot of insight in like your first job in a big company where yeah. you're just a pawn <laughs> in the machine. Like this they, is what it's really going to be right, like. Right, right. I mean, they, they they were just all kind of like self-made people, and that's great. That was great to have that influence, but it. Uh, I feel like I, I learned almost everything else after school because they yeah. didn't have that to contribute, right? Probably the only class I'd argue that would be like that, the IDEO class with our two professors that yeah. come from more of, we had um, two professors from IDEO that gave us more of a business perspective on yeah. things and less of a you know design. Mm-hmm. And also coming from like what it's like to actually be working in, yep. not a huge, I guess IDEO is a pretty big company, but you know, a smaller group of people, different types of people in a day-to-day versus sort of like people that have their own studios, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I liked the IDEO class too because I felt like it was um, it was back to the business world and it was like a validation of the things I was working on. I felt like, you know, it, training is not a sexy topic. Online education is not a sexy topic. I mean, we were talking to some people that like were still fighting over whether or not print was dead. And that's, yeah. <laughs> and, that's and that's fine. Like, I, I appreciate that conversation. But then when you go in and you're like, in a very technical niche market, I want to do this one innovative thing and it's based on another industry that you also aren't familiar with. It was sometimes really difficult to have like meaningful conversations because more traditional graphic design backgrounds are more like, you know, print campaigns and posters and things like that, which is again, fine, but not what I was really, I was doing design, but I was doing a very different version of it. So idea was one of the rare moments where it was like, business people were back in the room and they saw the market opportunities I was talking about and they didn't have to know the industry very well to still see what I was talking about. They could separate themselves from the visual stuff and they could understand what I was going for. And that, that was always kind of validating. So to answer your question about like, like corporate cultures, like, so I, I left, so we went from that, we went from SVA that was, you, you own the project, you create the project, you're responsible for all the cool stuff that happens from here on out, to IBM which was the exact opposite. It was uh, this 430,000 employee company. It has the population of Iceland. Yeah. Uh, this huge, <laughs> huge crazy. company. It's spread out all over the globe. You'll never know everyone. And uh, kind of getting thrown into like a team I didn't really know. I moved to Austin, Texas for it. So I was in a place I didn't really know. And um, everything was kind of upside down for a while. Uh, I ended up really just getting frustrated a lot. I think um, these years of being trained to be a rebel and to like 
disrupt marketplaces and do your own thing and then to like go to this like mega company was just kind of where you feel very much where you're literally a number like you have an id number but yeah um, i know how that feels yeah like it can it was it was kind of disorienting at first and i think i really didn't I, I had been spoiled basically like i'd been spoiled with being able to pursue my own things and maybe for the best like i i mean that's great i'm glad i wasn't comfortable like in a place where i wasn't really getting to push my own ideas or influence products in big ways but and then so then i left that and went to a startup and it's interesting a startup the most different thing is i picked it because of the people again like i didn't know anything about ad tech i didn't know why we were doing cool so the company does things for mobile advertising i didn't understand their value propositions or really why that was going to work but i really trusted another ido person uh who hired me for the position and i don't know it was a totally like gut feeling to take the job and it was dead on like i really enjoy working in small teams i feel like startups tend to trim the fat like only competent people pulling their weight are around (laughs) and they're not afraid to get rid of people who aren't and yeah big companies are the opposite, right? It's just tons of bloat. There's just like layers of management that don't need to be there, right? Um, and, and I feel like, like, especially in an old company, it's like people who, who aren't necessarily like earning their way to the top, but just outlasted everyone else in their department became the head of it. You know what I mean? And yeah. startups are everything opposite about that. And it's been much, much more satisfying. So do you think, so this is kind of random, but I know that you've done a lot of motion uh, videos, right? Yeah. In school, um, you, in After Effects or who knows where other software you were using, but you were always doing a lot of videos. Yeah. Very compelling, all really well told, uh, you know, storytelling, visually beautiful. Do you think that kind of led you to taking a job like this? Oh, uh, that's interesting. Um, I don't know if, I don't know what role motion had in, in taking a, so the, the whole motion thing came about because I was always interested in film. I did a film study certificate in undergrad. Um, I always appreciated movies and animation and stuff like that. Um, I think it was when I started at the training company, professional training company, they were, it was the recession. There was no money to, um, to invest in like a new, like full production scale video. Like they wanted to make, like they did every year. So the, the guys in the office had strapped together like a PowerPoint with audio on every slide. And they were going to try and sell this for like hundreds of thousands of dollars, like a standing go standard growing rate of the curriculum. And I remember looking at it and going, oh my God, like this is the end of the company if you try and push this on anyone. Like their, their clients were Fortune 100 companies, like big companies who totally would have seen through this. Um, <laughs> I was like, no, I've heard of this like animation tool called After Effects. Like this would, that would probably be a much better way to tell this story. We can animate everything. We don't have to hire all the sets and lights and crews and all that stuff. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Do you know how to do that? I was like, sure, totally. And like went home and learned After Effects because <laughs> I had no idea how to do it. And the first few videos, I'm sure, were pretty basic and awful, and, but it was good. I did that for a couple of years, got pretty good at After Effects, and then when grad school started, was like pretty adept at like being able to visually communicate these ideas in a, in a low-budget way that still looked really great. And I feel like it was all those kinds of scenarios that made me better at a startup because you're just wearing all the hats. hats. Like, so I wasn't, I wasn't just a graphic designer that knew print. I was someone who had done like movies because that one time that one job wanted me to do it. And yeah. like was someone who knew a thing or two about like online education platforms and details with that and compression ratings. I learned a lot about compression ratings because the ed tech stuff, they were, the networks they were on were so dated that they couldn't handle much bandwidth in terms of like the size of these video files. So I got really good at compressing video, which is like another odd skill to have as a designer. So I don't know that motion pushed me towards uh, startups, but I feel like a series of odd experiences as a designer made me better to be one of the first hires at a company because I could do a couple people's job at least for a while until we hired more people to do some of those things and be specialized. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's also being resourceful and then just having that drive and initiative to take that responsibility to learn whatever you need to learn to yeah. fill that void or like yeah. whatever that's like, I don't know, that your the company is looking for whatever that they need. You're like, I'll do it. Yeah. I'm going to email the CEO. Like, I feel like there's like several like mm. key instances where that really just pushed you like far and beyond than like the average person working in yeah. that environment, which is like phenomenal. I mean, I, I feel like props to you, like huge props for having that go get them balls to the wall attitude. <laughs> because like, you know, like not, not everybody has that 
I'm just kind of a know-it-all. <laughs> <laughs> so I, like, I walk into a room, and then if I don't know something, I try it, and if I don't you feel like figure I'm important out, enough, right? that I'm going to learn a skill that makes me more important. I don't know. It's, uh, but that's I don't know great. If it's like, I, I don't mean, know if it's like a noble curiosity mm. so much as like a little dickishness. Of, like, <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a fine line between the two. But I, no, I think that definitely sets you apart from a lot of other people. So I guess like with that, what would you say was the biggest risk, like a couple risks maybe that you've taken and like how did it go? Like, cause I know you've moved around a lot yeah. for jobs. Do you see it as a positive or like, I'm sure there were struggles yeah. within those moves or just jobs and anything. Change. Yeah. Yeah. I think I did uh, the two biggest risks I've done recently one went really well and one went really wrong. The first one that happened was the move to New York, which was a risk because I had technically, so it was, I've, uh, I graduated in 2008 from undergrad. Uh, so the recession happened within a couple of months and it was the worst time to be a college grad because you had no experience. No one was hiring. Everyone basically got knocked down a level where it was like, yeah. They, they would, you know, cut some executive jobs. So now executives were in managers and managers were now taking on like these entry level positions and like entry level people were kind of forced out of the job market. And so there was a period of unemployment that was really difficult. So when I finally got the job at the training company, like I just held on to it. I was like, oh my God, like I can't, I can't lose that. So uh, it created this weird paranoia and and should have made me really averse to change. And it did. I stayed there for two years even though it wasn't really my favorite thing, and slowly planned a way out to New York. Um, but there was risk where I was talking to my parents at the time, and I was like, I'm really thinking of going back to school. And they're like, you're going to take on six figures of debt, leave a job <laughs> you already have, like, everything's set and cushy here. Like, why would you, like, move to this other city you've never even lived in and, and try all this stuff? And I was in the same exact boat. Yeah? Yeah, my parents thought I was crazy. They're right. like, you have a stable job. Right. You're making good money. You're you're living at home, saving so you can, and you're going to just, like, drop it all and go to grad school. I'm like, well, I'm going to apply and see what happens. I yeah. mean, I've always wanted to sort of further my education. I've always wanted to teach. And I would never take back those two years of right, SBA. Right. I mean, it's one of we were 20 people basically yeah. in a small studio for two years every day interacting with each other and just learning from each other and from the professors and just Steve and Lita like it was an incredible experience but I mean yeah it is a little crazy right yeah. especially for you you made a huge move than I did uh, from Florida to New York but I think that's a common thread people seem to think yeah. like you know people are used to that regimented like you have your job right and right. you're doing well and why would you change that like yeah. why yeah. take a risk yeah. or why do something different that could you know we, in hopes that obviously we went to grad school to a to improve the future right, not right, to sort right. of be in the same day to day yeah. right I think it's also a generational thing because sure, yeah. both of my parents worked the same job for 35 years right right the fact that you would leave your job and work even like even in the same field is just like bizarre yeah. it's like a different it's a whole different time and like mindset for that yeah it's true like I, and I was talking about this with my brother actually the other day about this generational difference I feel like for I think there's another the older generation tends to uh, separate work and play in a different way like yeah. they have their nine to five that's that's not a, there's not really like a lot of thought about the quality of the nine to five outside of the benefits and compensation like salary and stuff and then they come home and then they have a home life where they invest time with family vacations so like whereas I feel like we and maybe it's just because we're young maybe it's not a generation so much as an age but we really want to love our jobs and we really want to spend we okay spending more time with them because they're investments and they're things we really want to do and we would totally walk away from a job that we don't like and feel not so much like a responsibility to have a job so much as one we really care about. So I totally agree. I think that's, I forget what the question was, but. Yeah. <laughs> about, about, basically about oh, the risk. Oh, the risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I just was like, oh, wow, no, no, the same no, no. thing happened to me. I'm listening to the ice cream yeah. truck outside. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good humor bars and strawberry shortcakes. I think that guy lives here because I hear that ice cream truck every day. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, risk. So anyway, so yeah, it was, it was a risk everyone took. Yeah, to move to move to a new place for that for that school, and and it was the best. Yeah, it was the best move I could have ever made. Like I make three times what I was making in Florida. Like I make more than my parents combined. Like I, it was definitely the right move. I couldn't see that that was all going to be a great plan, but um, I don't know. It was another gut instinct. Like I actually got into Parsons as well. Parsons was offering a scholarship that would have cut tuition in half. I would have wow. paid a lot less to go to Parsons. 
but I looked at SVA and I was like, I don't know, you. I'm only going to do this once. I'm not planning to do grad school again. Like, yeah. these are the people I want to learn from, and this is, like, the people who seem to get the kinds of stuff that I want to do. So, uh, so that was a scary risk, but it uh, worked out really well. Like, New York was great. New York threw tons of opportunities in my lap. The moment I got to New York, I got a random email from the art director at Victoria's Secret who was like, hey, I saw your stuff. This is great. You should come in. So I ended up working there, and I would do, like, kind of like a seasonal contract where I would go in and help with uh, some of the strategy stuff from a design perspective. And so, and that just wow. fell in my lap the moment I came to New York and was, was in the area. That was great because that was like the first big logo on my resume. That led to, uh, SVA also then led to working at Condé Nast, being part of like that whole like shift to mobile. Uh, and everything just kind of built on top of that. Then by the time IBM came around, I had like a, a list of like quality companies that I had been part of in a big way from a design perspective. So... Um, so that risk was like way better. Like I almost can't even take credit for how good that worked out. That was that was really good. New York was good. Uh, and then the, and then the other risk that didn't turn out was the exact same opposite. Well, it was the opposite. It was uh, I left New York. When things were when things were still going well, I, I left. So uh, so I took the job with IBM that was in Austin. Again, again, honestly, like it was the fatigue of the program at the end, feeling burnt out, uh, which. It's very easy to like mix right in with New York because it can also be overwhelming and tiring at times if you don't get out enough. And uh, and it was also going through a breakup. So like this like th- triple threat of, of negativity kind of made the idea of moving to like sunny Texas with a cushy job sound really <laughs> great. And so I did that. Um, job wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Ended up being really difficult to get out of that situation. They When they were interviewing me, they made it sound like I'd be able to make Semio for IBM, which sounded great. Um, the reality by the time I got there was that I was part of a huge hiring initiative that that was like one of 60 people walking in the door on the same day, all designers, almost all of them straight out of undergrad, not graduate school. So I was on their level in terms of ranking in the company, but was far more experienced, even with only a few years at some of these other companies and studying under these like legends. And so I remember like pulling someone aside and being like, all right, there's been a mix up. I was like... An art director at Victoria's Secret when I left and now I'm like an entry-level designer basically at IBM is like clearly overqualified for, for this role and they're like oh yeah you know I, I agree like you've definitely got like more experience than other people but we have a very strict system where you can only get raises incrementally and you can only get change in your status once a year at every yearly review they're like don't worry about it though like a few people in your situation we're gonna do your yearly reviews and then we'll consider like moving you up so I waited the whole year, but it was also one of those things where it was like, you want me to wait two years just to get back at the same level I was at before? Like, I could leave, go work somewhere, and come back in a year and a half and be at that level, and I would have made more money in the meantime and had better experience. So anyway, that was the beginning of the souring of that relationship early on, was realizing that I was stuck and they were too bureaucratic to do anything about it. Austin was fine, but I miss New York. I miss the people being very driven and excited and passionate about their jobs, and so... um, managed to talk IBM, uh, IBM into letting me move back. It was like some like Game of Thrones shit, like back, <laughs> back, backdoor dealings, like, like negotiating and like, yeah, all that stuff. And, <laughs> and got back to New York and then, uh, and then found uh, Yieldmo. Uh, so, I, so I left and went to that. And that was a good call because I would, I would still be sitting in that role and yeah. inching along instead of like helping a company like skyrocket. Yeah. So on a day-to-day, I guess, like, what is your role at mm-hmm. Yieldmo or a little elevator pitch of what, Yield, sure. you know, what you do at Yieldmo? Well, sure. a common word. That, that was our <laughs> last. Is that a word? Yeah. Elevator pitch. Yeah, it's okay. like the pitch you could give in a minute. For the rest of our lives, we'll have oh, I've our never thesis heard of elevator that. pitch in our brain. Literally, you have to be able to say quick, to the point, yeah. concise. Yeah. How many floors do you have? Good question. <laughs> Usually they go Are pretty we fast. Are in one world trade? Yeah. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Okay. So, <laughs> I like that. Anyways, um, just kind of like, you know, what your role is there, what sure. they do, what you do. So, uh, Yieldmo is a, is a mobile ad tech company. Their goal is to create better mobile ads and better mobile advertising experiences, which the bar is set really low, obviously. Like, anyone who's ever used their phone and seen an obnoxious pop-up ad or, like, all these, like, oh, terrible, sorry. ugly things or, like, banner ads getting squished down. Like, there's a, ro- a lot of really miserable experiences going on because people don't really properly understand the mobile space. And part of that problem is that people are coming at it to, from different angles. You have publishers, like, news sites that create the content and need to make money to pay their writers and their photographers and video editors and all that stuff. So they need to have ads. That's the model. 
because uh, no one wants to do subscriptions anymore. No one will pay. So they have to do ads. And so it's like, now that you have to, you know, you have to do this kind of evil, like, can you do it in the way that's the least damaging, annoying way possible? And so they care about the experience and they want readers to still obviously read the content and stuff like that. And for news sites, they tend to have even like a moral standing on like how easy it should be to read the stuff. Advertisers have the exact opposite goal. They want you to see and click on something. Uh, so they come up with the most loud, obnoxious, irritating, I don't care if you can't find the X to get out, that's yeah. better because you're going to stare at it longer. That? Yeah, and, and they're also not thinking about the big picture too because uh, they're not realizing that like there's actually a lot of studies now coming out talking about how like brands that do these annoying pop-ups actually have create a negative impression for the brand. So it's like... I wasn't going to buy BMW anyway, but now I'm looking at this like annoying pop-up that keeps stopping me every time I try to go to this page, and now I'm actually like angry at this this brand instead of it being a positive thing. So the user experience matters in advertising, and um, because there aren't enough people really thinking about it that way, it's kind of an interesting place for Yieldmo to bring in all these really strong designers from Google and IBM and IDEO, and uh, like half the team is practically SVA graduates. So people who um, have a high benchmark for, for aesthetic quality and user experience to come in and essentially kind of change the market to, to do better mobile ads. Mobile ads are these like tiny things that we all ignore, so it seems sometimes funny to put so much thought into them. But it has been like a lot of interesting puzzles and unexpected kind of challenges, some of which are like working with an A-B testing person and like working with data engines and machine learning and all this kind of like science fiction sounding stuff that advertising like uses because they need to prove the value of everything. And that like concentration on proving the efficacy of a design has been like a whole new world of, of thinking about the way you do stuff because uh, you know, education had that a little bit where it was like, all right, I want people to learn the curriculum, but it could have been a lot of factors that influenced whether or not someone learned something. Uh, and then we had like weird influences like Milton who like, not that he's weird, but uh, but influences like him that like never bothered to think about whether or not that like brilliant I Heart New York logo was successful or not because obviously it's everywhere, everywhere you know. So yeah. yeah, it's it's presenting new challenges at Yieldmo. I'm I'm officially their product design lead. I lead a platform that basically enables agencies and publishers to create mocks of those mobile ads. So do you ever like so when you're working, are you creating like almost like mockups or prototypes for these companies? And then showing them to them, or is it more like this is sort of what we do and we can skin it toward your company? Um, like, how much interaction do you have with the outside clients, per se? Um, hopefully less now. <laughs> I, uh, no, it's So we do a bunch of different things. What we actually make are these, what we call formats, ad formats. Uh, they're essentially templates that let you kind of drag and drop the create, like you can drag and drop the image in and you write your own text, but everything needs to be very scalable. So we don't do one-off solutions. There are companies out there, boutique kind of ad agencies that do that. Yeah. Uh, we don't do that. It's, ours is more of just mass scale template kind of stuff. We create lots of different templates though, so there's lots of variations. We also A-B test all of them in lots of different contexts, so they're constantly being optimized. That's the downside of a one-off solution is someone can have all the flexibility to make this cool one experience, but... You're not testing it to see if people actually did the thing you thought they were going to. You're not actually testing the colors to see if they're having the impact or if they're changing. I mean, there's so many different variables, and I've, I've learned quite a bit doing this now that like even a really basic format can have wildly different performing metrics based on small minutia and changes in the, in the, in the design. So uh, so most of what our focus is, is part of, I'm part of the design team there is called the Ad Format Lab. That's what they do is they focus on making new ad formats. And like I said, it's a lot of detail-oriented, small tweaks make big ripple effects. But part of that is when you create a new kind of format like that, you then have to go back to ad agencies and train their, their designers and their strategists. All right, when you plan for your next big campaign, here's what a mobile ad could look like. Here are some cool things you could do. Here's what we just did with Coca-Cola. Here's what we just did with J.Crew. And like you can use these formats and think ahead next time you're like building out your assets and what you want to do creatively so that you can run these mobile ads later too. So some of it's that. And sometimes they'll be like, all right, we want to run this, but we don't have a designer on hand. Sometimes it's media buyers that are not even the agency. Um, So they'll be like, hey, we want to run that, but we don't have a designer. So then we'll have to do some of the the annoying pixel pushing kind of of rearranging this, you know, uh, standard size ad that they have for Facebook and like making it fit to our standards and stuff like that. So it's a little bit of that right now, but doing that is what gave me the idea of creating a platform where people could do that themselves. So uh, again, like thinking about scalable solutions instead of requiring designers to always touch it. It's like a designer still makes the ad, but now more people can use like basic, I mean the same way on Instagram, you have yeah. some basic editing tools. You can handle that. Like, mm-hmm. 
people can kind of adjust the, the images in creative in certain ways to be able to run the platforms themselves without needing 10,000 people to like launch a silly mobile ad. So at any other jobs did you have all these kind of factors and thinking and it just seems very different right? Yeah. from your background. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think anything was as complex as this one has been, and it's also a little different because they were more established companies. Like established companies, like they've they figured it out. Like they know the process, the workflows. They've hired all the people in the departments, and like not to say there aren't pain points, but like they kind of know what they're doing. Whereas a startup, it's like especially when you're trying to do something no one else is doing, it's like the wild west. You're constantly. Mm-hmm. It's more complex because there's a lot more things you're gonna have to do that aren't really figured out yet. But um, yeah, it's definitely different from that does, that data perspective. Like Victoria's Secret is a well machine like their buyers and their e-commerce platform is state-of-the-art like they are constantly monitoring how things get sold when it gets sold exactly what to rearrange with the buyers are taking that information and like changing what's going to be in the next season the designers had to build really flexible systems so that that could be a very like always evolving system so in that sense that was a pretty data-driven approach to design you would never know it because their brand and look and feel are just so like polished and all about like sexiness that you're never thinking like the AI behind this platform, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Whereas, whereas this uh, this kind of group is is also data driven, but maybe a little bit easier because ad tech's more open to data. It's a little, it makes a little bit more sense, or it's a little bit more expected. So, did you ever think you'd be thinking about data often and how it interplays with sort of design and business needs for a company? So, I wrote um, a little medium post a few months ago that was called Milton Glaser versus Big Data, or Big Data versus Milton Glaser. It actually got like a little bit of attention, like Communications Arts reblogged it and oh, wow. uh, ADC reblogged it and like it got a, a, some, some, a lot of responses. And, but the, the crux of the article was, was kind of what we've alluded to already, which is that there seems to be like these two worlds that are merging. It's like the old school way of like designer as author where, you know, you have a eureka moment or you iterate a lot and sketch a lot and you come up with this brilliant logo and... Uh, and then that goes out the door and you only show that client the one logo and you just kind of stand firm. You know, you, there's great quotes with like Paul Rand. I had to think for a moment because we were just talking about Rand Paul. Um, <laughs> where Paul Rand's talking to to Steve Jobs and he's like this like really bombastic letter he writes to him about how like for the next logo that Steve Jobs had him do. And he says, you know, like this is your logo. You don't have to use it, but you pay me no matter what or something like that. And it's like, that's pretty much just like ballsy attitude. We saw in a lot of other designers, but like at an ad agency, like I don't, I don't come up with one design. I come up with like dozens of variations of a design and they get run through uh, an A-B testing platform that tests them in a bunch of areas. It quickly figures out, all right, that red button you thought was a great idea. No one's clicking on it. Boom, 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 boom. And it like readjusts things and it kind of is constantly calibrating and that becomes my assistant. Not that, not to reduce the great thing that is designed down to such a limited, like, did they click it or not kind of thing. And, th- and it's not always right, because sometimes they click on it a lot and it looks like shit. So, like, that's not always right either. But there are new tools at play, basically, is, is the gist of it, that our old school teachers didn't really ever have to use or think about. And that designers in the real world today, I think, especially in advertising... Uh, are having to balance with the way they were taught about design. Like, no one told me how I should use testing in my design process. Like, I do a little bit. Like you said before, that yeah. idea class did have a little bit more real-world school, uh, skill sets. But, you know, a lot of it was, like, fluffy metrics and just kind of, like, when the client likes it, it's done. And that's not at all the world that I have to live in right now. Yeah, it's interesting because... I guess a lot of times people think, you know, you're just designing something, you're making it look pretty, which I hate when mm-hmm. people say that. Um, but there's all the, especially from more of like a usability or like a day-to-day of someone interacting with that product, these are all these other factors now, especially with like digital, with whether you have a tablet, a phone, a computer, whatever, there's all these other nuances that you have to think about. Yep. It just makes it very interesting job and challenges that you have on a day-to-day right um, yeah. so it's not just making about something look good but it's like making something usable mm-hmm. that looks good or that is meeting whatever that goal is at the end of the day yeah and i think it's like design's more measurable now yeah like, it's easier to see the impact of design in a way that these other legends couldn't do with a poster campaign or something like that so it's like now we have this data we're being asked to, what to do with it and and it's yeah, it's like almost like a moral quandary of like do I design everything so that all these metrics are great or do I design things because I think it looks great? Like 
Milton has great work, and I don't give a shit if the conversion rate was high or not. Like, <laughs> it's a great poster, yeah, exactly. and it's special to yeah. me. Like on, a, on the same level, that, like if someone like took P- Pablo Picasso and like started to like test. So there's like this weird line that designers are kind of confronted with now, where it's like I love what I do because there's something creative and ephemeral about it, but I'm also being held to these standards now that, and I think for very good reasons, want to make sure it works and want to yeah. make sure that the reason that you're designing these things has the net effect it's supposed to. So the the way I've kind of handled it, the way I kind of outlaid in the article and the way I kind of think about it still is design should drive, not data. You shouldn't just be like designing things just because it did well. You, sh- you shouldn't be running things just because it did well. That uh, designers should be asking questions and data should be answering it. So the designer's still the author in a sense that they're creating things and they're thinking about things and they're coming up with that inspiration and that idea. But they have now this like extra tool that helps them know if that's a good idea or not. And you can totally, based on the project and based on who you are as a designer and what you want to accomplish, take that with a grain of salt or not. Like maybe you're in a workforce where the data really matters and the performance really matters. Maybe it's even a specific project where the performance matters more than others. Yeah. But you're still the origin of the creativity. You just use that as a validation process to, to kind of figure out if that was a good call or not. And and sometimes it's great. Like sometimes we think we have a brilliant idea and then we go and we test it and we're like, man, that would have been embarrassing if we had actually like, scaled that to the full thing because yeah. now it's painfully obvious why that didn't so, do so well. And it's, it's very quick though, I feel like even with data though, the brain quickly recognizes patterns. And so I'm already realizing like, nope, you don't want to run that at the header because someone's going to skip right by that and blah, blah, blah. We've seen this with a dozen other things. So it's like we used to rely more on testing in the beginning when we knew nothing, but we're quickly understanding how things work. So the data... Sometimes surprises us, but humans quickly adapt to the way kind of behavior patterns start to appear. Where do you see, um, I guess with that, since even, I would say even like the past five years, that has evolved and changed. Like where do you see in the next coming five years that evolving even more and even where you come to play into that as a designer? Yeah, um... Next five years. So it's funny, like the last five years, <laughs> there was like smartphones and I think tablets had just come out. And so like you'd make something for the web and then like sometimes some companies cared about a phone version, but usually not. Yeah. Because smartphones were still in the majority of the market. And then there was this new thing called tablets and people were doing apps, but not really thinking about, I don't know. So now it's like five years later and it's totally different. Like now there's like 50 million screen sizes. Yep. Android's got like <laughs> a million Android. different phones. Yep. There's tablets, there's mini tablets, there's phablets, there's phones, there's like large <laughs> phone pluses now. There's like everything. And so that part of it's definitely changed a lot in terms of like designing for things. Like it went from like little manageable to like completely overwhelming. And I think there's really cool, interesting things happening. Like the grid.io. Have you seen this? This is a, it's kind of like Squarespace where you build your own website, but it's Mm -hmm. an AI that can actually design it. So the, basically the way it works is it's like an AI is able to, there's actually a growing kind of trend. They're calling this advanced design. It's when a designer works with an artificial intelligence to build something. And basically the artificial intelligence does a lot of the pixel pushing for them. So the designer, again, is still the origin of the idea, but there is a machine that can help them do things faster. The same way that robots build cars because that's not a technically advanced thing to do if you just train a robot to like do the right things. A lot of design is like create a grid structure or like move images around and crop them the right way according to like a, a, a rule of thirds and uh, use color palettes that are complementary. And like there's a lot of like actually pretty mechanical things about design that's what most people spend undergrad learning is like all those rules technically you can train a machine to do quite a few of those things and then they can take care of a lot of that work for you so i feel like that's that's what's coming next that's what we're even talking about at yieldmo is like a project i'm calling songbird where we're basically taking like a randomizing engine and then slowly adding constraints to it so like we have a, a like a basically a rectangle that's an ad format it has a square image and it has lines of text and they're just infinite arrangements of ways to do that and probably a button and there's lots of different arrangements and so what I do is I just tell it to randomize and then I slowly add more constraints and I say look uh, this person because we also have things like attributions where we can see a person's history so it's like this person's been to ESPN and a couple other sports sites and I know that this sports behavior pattern uh, tends to respond to this arrangement and the thing can like rearrange the elements wow. to do that and it would do it in real time when a designer's not in the office when I'm home on you know on so you're weekends. putting a set of jobs no no, 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 because I still, I still have to. It's funny that because we've been talking about education, it's like I train humans how to do this, but I'm very soon going to be training a machine how to do yeah. this, uh, and so that'll be an interesting teaching comparison wow, to make yeah. that like uh, 
we'll, we'll see just how far we can go in terms of automating some of this stuff. But it won't take me out of a job for sure because there's still going to be – I still come up with the formats. Yeah. I still come up with the layouts. I still – there's still a lot of people involved in running all those campaigns, so I'm not worried about putting myself out of a job. But I am looking forward to the day where I don't have to worry about the pixel pushing side of things or like counting, you know, spaces in my grid or worrying about all these little like details because now we have this like auto fluid layout that's happening. And I feel like that's the only way you can really handle it when you get into these like device sizes that are exploding. Like it's not going to change; it's going to get worse. There's going to be more device sizes. Um, <laughs> there's going to be more information that's coming for the, that's collected in terms of like analytics and metrics and all this stuff that's happening and humans are eventually going to outpace themselves we see it with like the stock market where we have ai that's basically running most of the transactions that happen in the stock market because their brains are built out of silicon which conducts electricity faster than carbon and they're just able to do things way way faster like when there was a crash not too long ago as a result of the computers messing something up they it took them like two or three days to look back over the data of what had happened in seconds between the machines. Like they were computing and doing all these transactions so much faster that it took a human like long time to yeah. like look through. And so I feel like that's, that's kind of scary and weird to think about. I think <laughs> Wired's done some cool articles on that stuff, but I also think like that's kind of where everywhere's headed. Like designers are going to start having to have tools that think that fast, that help them process big data in ways in real time, make decisions much quicker. It doesn't take them out of the loop, but it's a new it's a new interface to deal with. The same way that Photoshop changed everything, I think these kinds of systems will change things too. Cool. So when you're not designing and teaching and doing everything, all the, all <laughs> yeah, the, all things. the things, as we say, um, <laughs> what do you find yourself doing or things that interest you? <sighs> Sleeping. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> I still play video games. It's funny. Like I don't know if I'm like a gamer now, but... Um, <laughs> But it's like, I think ever since that semio experiment, like I've still kind of like games, like games that are based around story. I really do think that they're like a different kind of art form. Uh, so they're fun to just kind of stay up on what's going on. Um, what else do I do? I love going out in the city. Um, spend way too much money at restaurants and drinks and having fun. Um, <laughs> like all of us. Yeah. I, I can tell you what I don't do. I don't go to a lot of design talks because I, I get bored really easily. Um, and I don't feel like there's a lot, there's way more talks than there are interesting things to say. Like... There's a yeah. lot of people saying, like, mobile is the, the next thing. big thing. Yeah. And it's like, all right, like, where's my 45 minutes back? Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, like, I did South By this year. I was actually fortunate enough to speak at South By Southwest about um, about game design, um, which was kind of an extension of some of the semio themes. But when I was there, it was just, it was, like, so boring because there's just so many people talking about, oh, and wearables and Internet of Things, and it's just so many buzzwords um, that I don't have a lot of patience for that kind of stuff. Like, I remember, like, wanting to move back to New York because I would have access to it, but now I, I actually seldom take advantage of it. I'm very picky about ones I actually want to show up to because you can you can waste every night of the week going to one of those things and not learn a thing so um <laughs> well and a lot of them cost money too yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's just like Microsoft just wants to look like they're cool and into design, so they're going to host something every goddamn day yeah. so that you, like, actually, I don't know. It's, and it's not about whether or not there's something important to say. It's about Microsoft looking like they're, like, hosting these cool things. So, I don't know. you got to be, I'm picky about that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, meetups are tough, though. I feel yeah. like they're kind of hit or miss, right? There's some that are, like, really compelling and exciting yeah. or, like, you're meeting really cool people, and then other ones, it's just, like, they're all the same thing. Right. I did just sign up for one that sounds more interesting. It's a it's a UX book club. Oh, cool! So everyone reads the same book about UX or a topic or something like that, and then that's they discuss the book. I feel like that's a much more focused way to have a, a productive conversation, and everyone's contributing. Like, I don't care that you're the art director at some at startup. So. Like, yeah, exactly. you might not even know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know. Like, I think that like just making it more democratic and just like having everyone share ideas is a much more engaging way to learn something than. Uh, and plus, you're reading a book, so you're guaranteed to learn a few things it sounds more appealing than like everyone sit in a room and listen to one guy talk let's hope about it's buzzwords right. in the industry right. right now yeah i mean i was actually going to ask you are you reading anything interesting <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. i mean beyond books like do you read like what kind of articles do you read or hmm. do you listen to podcasts um like where where are you getting your external mm -hmm. stimuli information i have um I have a thing called Panda. It's a browser extension for Chrome that's pretty handy. It does not only a news feed of things going on in design, kind of trending articles and blogs, posts, but it also imports my dribble. So it'll like show like popular. So it's a like, cool way to do like visual inspiration at the same time as just some like news. And every time I get it, open a new tab, it's there. So it's, it's a little distracting at first. I didn't like it a lot because it was a lot going on, especially with all the animated GIFs that happen on dribble. But yeah. <laughs> um, 
but uh, no, that's a great way to just like very instantly stay up on things. Um, there's a handful. I'm trying to remember now what the name of it was. There's a handful of um, uh, like investment firms and VC companies that will do newsletters, and sometimes that's a good way to stay up on like emerging things because they'll have like pretty pretty good analysis of like things and they're you know they're paying attention because they're investing money in the places they think that are going to do something cool so yeah, uh those are good ways from like a tech perspective to stay up on things in terms of books reading like i i actually like i've been doing more ph- philosophical reading i've been reading umberto eco wrote a essay on hyper reality which is a fancy way of saying like when people make things that look like the original so like disney world is kind of yeah. this bizarre phenomenon of like it is a fake city like that castles never existed main street usa isn't a particular street and it's not a replica of anything but it's somehow a replica of all of our subconscious versions of these like fake things anyway That's uh, interesting. yeah so he's doing this yeah. tour in the 60s and 70s and he's writing about how like america has this and he's like italian and being very like mean to americans <laughs> but, but he's just being like very critical of our like obsession with with the real and that obsession of the real forces us to make fake versions of things so i don't know i don't know if that's had any like direct application to any of my work but it has been like just a fascinating concept to like have in the back of my mind of just kind of like this weird relationship i think it could it goes hand in hand with your creating an ad and Hmm. basically you have to like jump into somebody's brain into how they're going to like (laughs) interpret it like absolute that is a hyper reality like you are building something based on what this person's viewing as like hyper realistic and what are they going to pick like you might as well be psychic (laughs) well and like skeuomorphic design i guess is like a good example of that like apple does all these like textures and buttons that look like like radio knobs and all this stuff like I was just looking. Yeah, that, um, that are supposed to supposed to look like real world things, and so it's like you're you're in this new medium, but you're still relying on these old ways of thinking, and you're replicating them in a digital space. And there is there's a point where it almost reaches its own uncanny valley of like I'm faking this experience, and I'm not taking advantage of what this new medium can really let us do. Like we're we're too scared to make something new, so we're just going to imitate other things all the time. Yeah. So yeah, okay, maybe there's a connection. (laughs) Being sort of in the LGBT community, have Mm -hmm. you ever felt any struggle with that in a, I guess, day-to-day or career way? Or do you feel that it hasn't really affected you at all? I know Um, some people, there's like this really drastic effect. um, And other people, not so much. So... Yeah, I um, hmm. I don't know if it's affected me that much. I I always tell people like uh, there was a point where someone like actually it happened at work a few months ago. Someone I was standing next to a coworker who was Asian and another coworker who was from the Middle East, and she looked at me and she said, "Oh, it's all the minorities." And I was like, "I'm a white male." Like, "Oh, oh, I'm gay." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> I, and I feel like that's still kind of how I think about it. Like, I'm. At the end of the day, I'm still a white male. I'm still, like, the most privileged demographic in human history. Like, terrible, terrible things were done by people who look like me. But, um, and so I feel like that's kind of what I think first and foremost. So I never really think of myself as a minority or, like, I'm slighted. And I also am not especially effeminate, which I think helps. Like, I can kind of get away with being straight if I wanted to or if I'm not even really trying to think about it. Like, um, so I don't feel like there's, like, an obvious... Um, disadvantage I guess for for being gay and working where I have I will say that and I think it's becoming less and less of a thing like especially the gay marriage thing like regardless of whether or not anyone's planning to get married that's a very symbolic thing that kind of puts us on the same footing as everyone else and so um, I think what was interesting was when I lived in New York um, as a designer lots of other gay designers uh, when I took the job with IBM and moved to Texas I was suddenly like leaving an area where I could get married, had all the same rights, and I was going to like a place that is still actively trying to find a way to overturn the Supreme <laughs> Court ruling if they can figure it out. Um, so that was weird. Like IBM and everyone there was super supportive of it, and they weren't bothered or affected by it. But it felt weird to live in a state that I could be fired for being gay, and yeah. um, where you know I couldn't get married and I couldn't get settled down. Like immediately put like a kind of like short sightedness on living there and working there because. You know, yeah. as long as I was in Texas, I couldn't have the rest of my life in a weird way. So 
that was the most recent time and hopefully the last time for a long time that that comes up and is actually a thing that influences like a career or life decision in terms of being gay but yeah I would say that life's good in a very prejudiced world um, I haven't had to, to deal with as much of it which is great I remember you telling me um, I guess typically when you, if you were in a relationship when you started a job you would just immediately yeah. sort of send yeah. an email or as part of your intro email sure. that's part of it so there's like no guessing or yeah, like you know yeah. because there's a, or at least for me like yeah. there'd be that assumption like oh do you have a boyfriend and you're just like uh, and then you, you feel like you have to like repeat yourself mm-hmm. over and over again to these people mm-hmm, and I'm like oh mm-hmm. that's so smart it's just like a simple way to just put everything out there and on the table and whatever at the end of the day who cares right like yeah. Who you are, so yeah, I I really hate coming out, and I feel like people think that you do that once, and then you're you, it's done. You came yeah. out. It's like no, no, you do that every day, all day, yeah. all the time, yeah. and um, I hate it. <laughs> so yeah. so I usually just find like the easiest broadcast of like I don't know, walk in wearing pink pants and one day and just like, let <laughs> everyone know, and then I don't have to really like try to like think about it ever again. Uh, but it still happens. Like some people, like I said, like teaching people you have to repeat things so it's like some people happened the other day someone's we were having a company outing and someone was like oh are you bringing your wife and i was like really where and you don't like, even have a wedding band on no like, no it's like, it's like a company of less than 100 people you're like attention. my wife huh? <laughs> um so yeah anyway like, so no, no it still happens but it doesn't it doesn't bother me too much i guess cool well thank you so much yeah. uh, for coming on and talking to us and um is there anywhere that you, if people want to further the conversation with you, that you can be reached? Like, if you want to give us your website or Twitter or whatever, yeah, wherever tw- you are in the digital world. Um, yeah, Twitter's where probably Where can we find you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we- I'm on, well, I don't know. So Twitter is at Sean Sprocket, S-H-A-W-N-S-P-R-O-C-K-E-T-T. And, uh, and it's the same for Dribble. I think it's the same name. Cool. Uh, so those are both probably good places to uh, check out some of my stuff and see I, a lot of those uh, books and, and magazines and reports I was talking about I usually reblog so it's hopefully a good resource for some of that too yeah definitely we'll also put everything up uh, in links great uh, so it'll be easy for people to get to you thanks for this this was fun yeah great thanks yes. so much thanks guys <laughs> thanks Sean yeah. thanks until Jenny. next time until <laughs> next time everyone <laughs> uh, any questions concerns comments inquiries uh, please email us at Hello at nakedandinsideout.com. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.